This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Basically. I'm very excited about our guest today. It is the amazing Nell Scovell. She is the creator of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the one that you would have watched in the 90s and 2000s uh, with Melissa Joan Hart and Nate Richard and uh, Aunt Hilda and Aunt Zelda. And it, it was a formative thing in my childhood. And I first met Nell because I asked her to blurb my book, the, my first book that I wrote, Why Can't Everything Just Stay the Same? Nell, you're joining me from, where are you, Massachusetts? Yes, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of Harvard University. How close are you to Harvard there? Oh, I I could throw a stone and hit the science building. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, It's like a ghost. It's a ghost town now, though, so it's sad. Like, are there no students learning in person? No, no. But next fall, so, you know. Always hoping on on the future. So uh, for those of you who don't know who are listening, Nell Scovell is, well, why don't you introduce yourself? What do you want people to know about you? Because I'll have done an introduction. I uh, wrote a book called Just the Funny Parts and a Few Hard Truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. And it was a memoir of my 30 plus years as a television writer. And we know each other because... uh, One of my credits is I created Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the original ABC live action version. Um, There's a new Sabrina, the chilling adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And I always say every generation gets the Sabrina they deserve. (laughs) So these are chilling times. But um, back uh, in the mid-90s, it was just a lighthearted, fun show, which I believe you watched. But it was much more than a lighthearted, fun show, particularly for my generation. I mean, I learned, I, I, learned, I learned so much from it, apart from all this subtext stuff that I gleaned from it about, you know, she didn't have a dad present, I didn't have a dad present, she was being raised by her aunts, I was being raised by women as well, all of that stuff. But like, on a fundamental level, things like... How do you find the slope of a line? Y sub two minus Y sub one over X sub two minus X sub one. <laughs> uh, you know, what mitosis is. It was a really educational show. Those things that they were learning in school, we were learning in real time. Was that something that ye like were adamant about? That like kids who were watching this were going to be learning what the kids in the show were learning? Well, I I think what was subversive about the show was Sabrina wasn't interested in being a popular kid. She, she really, she wanted to be a good student. She wanted to be a good friend. She, when I was running the show, I don't know if she ever went shopping like that. That wasn't, she wanted to be a good person. She wanted to know if the boy she liked, liked her. You know, I look back, there was so much about consent in the show, never overtly, but Any time there was a romantic situation, it always involved each um, character asking the other, like, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. Um, And again, I don't think I did that consciously, but I was conscious that young girls would be watching the show. So in that sense, I I did want to make a show that um, 
Well, I always said I wanted to make a show that I would have liked when I was yeah. young. I think that's probably why we get on, because you would have liked it and I did like it. Because I was yeah. it was all of those things like I also prided myself on my intellect rather than my looks or or and I wasn't so interested in boys. I have recently and and since meeting you become very close friends with Nate Richard who plays Harvey Kinkle in that show who was like my teenage heartthrob and now we're friends which is kind of incredible. But oh he's delightful. He's yeah. so sweet. Did you as so you were the showrunner? Did you did you write all of the episodes? And if not, did you kind of pass all of the episodes to make sure that they were passing some sort of like litmus test that you created as the showrunner? Or how does that work? Well, in the end, I did. I think I wrote half the episodes myself only because there was a tone and a vision I had for the show that was just easier for me to sit down and, and write. And I did. We had a writer's room that was wonderful and we would you know, they pitch out the stories, um, but it, it was tricky and it, it was, a, I don't, it, you know, it was, it was very much coming from my heart. So, uh, which I think does tend to make really good television um, when you have someone who's just pouring themselves, <laughs> their, themselves into it. Um, it wasn't sustainable <laughs> to do at that level. Yeah. Um, but uh, there, there were some great writers on the show. And once you moved on from Sabrina, what are the other things that sort of feel to you like they were very authentically you or that you poured your heart into it? Or is it something that you do with everything that you write? Oh, well, for television, um, you know, the, the trick is to capture someone's voice. Mm-hmm. And so there's individual characters' voice, but there's also a voice of a show. So, you know, it's it's always nice when that voice is close to your own. That makes it easier. So I wrote a bunch of episodes for a show called Monk, which was um, he's a detective with OCD. And that was fairly close to my own voice. Um, I worked on a show called Warehouse 13, which was on the Sci-Fi channel. And that was a really fun combination of genre and comedy. So that was very close to my voice. I just um, wrote another Simpsons episode. Oh, brilliant. In December. So you wrote, um, so just for listeners, Nell wrote the episode of The Simpsons called One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish, which is the one where um, Homer eats um, fugu. It's, is it season one or season two? Very early, like classic season Simpsons, season two. And then, so you're going to die. So Homer is dying and he has to process, go through the stages of grief. It's such a brilliant episode. Everyone remembers it because it was at that time. I think it broadcast at that time where people watch The Simpsons as a sort of an appointment viewing. Like you watched it every night when it came out. Um, so you're, you've written a new episode. Is it, is it, has the process changed in all those years? Oh, um, a little bit. You know, it's faster now because they the animation has gotten so much faster. Right. They did say I hold the record for the longest amount of time between two episodes. I think it was 30 years. Oh, my God. It was a woman who wrote a Doctor Who episode, like, in the early days and then for for the reboot. But she only had 28 years 
um, between her episodes. So I, I think I, I still beat her. And how does that process but, work? Do they just come to you or do you go to them and say, I want to write another episode? Or Because surely the personnel have changed in that in those three decades. Insanely enough, no. But so what's interesting is the difference. So the first one I wrote, I went to them the the day after I watched the first Simpsons that aired, um, I knew it was special. And I knew it was kind of the way my sense of humor worked. And they the the characters um were kind of mean to each other. And I remember one scene where they're at Homer and Marge have taken the kids to Mr. Burns for like a company picnic. And as the kids run off, Homer yells after his children, be normal, yeah. be normal. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. So I recalled my agent the next day and I was like, I want to write an episode for the Simpsons. And, they, and it's hard to remember that like it was at best a cult show. Like it was a weird ass cartoon airing in prime time with, you know, yellow people. Yeah. And um, so my, I don't think people were clamoring to write freelance episodes back then. Right. Okay. So I did, um, I think my interest and uh, I knew a couple of the people working on the show. So they invited me to write one then. Um and now this this time they just came back to me and they they said you know would you have time to write another and Al Jean who the showrunner had an idea for a Lisa episode about Lisa apologizing and um, like how do you apologize when actually you were right yeah <laughs> what you said but you hurt someone's feelings um, and I think a lot about apologies. Um, and women um, and the way men act and how healing an apology can be, even if it doesn't solve a 20-year-old problem, you know, it transfers the discomfort. It, it transfers the anger in a really um, healing way. So um, I really like the subject area and jumped in. And does it, when when you get asked to write an episode of a show, like, is it is a part of your job to be watching all the shows all the time? Or like, if, if, if The Simpsons come to you, are they expecting that you are a regular viewer of the show? Or if Monk come to you, or is it okay to say, I actually don't really know the show, but I'm, I'm willing to like do the work to catch up? Or how does that work? So it's gotten so much easier. So very early in my career, I got a call about um, in 1988 that they were rebooting the Smothers Brothers comedy hour. And would I be interested in working on the show? And I was like, yes, I love them. Okay, I'd never seen them <laughs> when okay. I said this. And I literally had to go to, I was in New York and there's a museum of broadcasting and television. So I go to the museum, I call up like old, you know, rotoscopes no you know videos of yeah. the the show and watch them in a little cubicle in the library so today it's easy today you know i hadn't obviously watched every simpsons episode but i went back and watched a bunch of recent episodes that focused on lisa mm -hmm. so i could really hone in on her character um it hadn't changed at all yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
which made it easier. I mean, they are cartoons. So, um, but you know, I, again, if, if you like a show, it's so much easier to write. I was on a show called NCIS. I used to love NCIS. Do you? So I was on the mothership on the third season, I want to say. Um, and I like some of the characters. I loved Abby. She's incredible. She's so incredible, um, yeah. And Ziva was on the show. Like, the women were really good on that show. Ziva David is an incredible character. Like, she's trained by Mossad. I love her. <laughs> um, yeah, I wrote an episode where um, she, for the first time, kind of falls for a guy who turns out he's been poisoned and only has 24 hours to live. Which is a perfect Ziva yeah. guy for Ziva to fall in love with, right? <laughs> You're, you don't have to worry about the commitment going wrong. Um, and that one, that one was harder for me to like key into the, the general. And and I mean, being totally honest, I would watch the show, and I almost always fell asleep in the third act. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely and- one for background watching. Yes. And what was always striking about the show is you could fall asleep in the third act and not be lost in the fourth act. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a great No, it's great not. Show. You do get the sense Although that... Although maybe it says more about TV than it says about the show. It does feel like the stories are... They would be far better told very, very quickly in some other, you know, in some other way, like an hour-long show they even have to do that thing where at the start of every ad break they do a snapshot to tell you where you're going to get to just to kind of keep you in there I think (laughs) yeah uh it's um I don't know I haven't see that's a show too that's been on forever and I I, I'm sure I wouldn't recognize that show if I watched it again because everyone I worked with or almost everyone is now gone but on the Simpsons they're all pretty much still there are they well, Al Jean is still running it. Al Jean. Well, they still, it's it's more on the show. I mean, a lot of the, Ziva's the gone, Abby's yeah. gone. You know, my favorite characters are all gone, uh, unlike The Simpsons. And how was it then? So when I read your book, Just the Funny Parts, first of all, it was just fascinating to see as a screenwriter, like to see someone's career. And it's brilliant. Nell has it broken down into there are, four parts to every person's career. So the first part is who is Nell Scovell? So when you're new and no one knows you, then get me Nell Scovell. When you're at the peak, everyone wants you. Then get me a younger, cheaper version. (laughs) And then part four is who is she again? Where you've kind of withered (laughs) into obscurity. But it looks like you're still very far away. Like you probably are in part three now where people are trying to get a cheaper version of you, but certainly not in part four yet. Oh, definitely a younger version. No, look, the the fourth who is Nell Scovell turned out to be an ex- existential question. Yeah. Of, you know, wh- why, what is my purpose? What does it all mean? And I ended up through bizarre circumstances co-writing Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg, yeah. which, you know, was, I think, the seventh best-selling book in the entire decade um, from 2010 to 2020. What do we call that decade? Uh, a better time than now. <laughs> the, the naive, the naivety is what we call it. The good old days. I think we call it the 20 teens or the teen. I don't, I don't know. 
the the teens. The aughts, the, all right, the tweens. We'll yeah. just call it the tweens. Um, and that was like that was great, and to be able to help Cheryl, you know, that's a book she'd been writing in her head for twenty years, and to you know help her get it on paper and make it something that people wanted to read um, and change lives. So that was that was exciting, and um, but I still, you know, I'm still I'm working on a pilot for Netflix right now, which I'm excited about, and. Uh, still trying to do TV. It's it, yeah. I still have things to say. Well, that's that's kind of that part of it. That's like where where you're still writing. You're always going to be a writer, but the feeling of like working on pilots, it just feels sometimes as someone who's in the industry as well that you're at the end of other people's decisions so frequently that there's a sense as a writer that you have all this agency because you're the creator. But it takes so many people to get something made that that can be quite disheartening. Yes. And that's, you know, I I have a friend, I tell this story in the book about calling a friend who just had a pilot get picked up and saying, congratulations. And his response was just another step on the path to disappointment. Yeah. (laughs) And it, wait, just another step on the path to inevitable disappointment. Disappointment. And it's, True. I mean, you know, like I I say, do you, you know, do you like rejection? Have I got a profession for you? Yeah. Like you really do. And in fact, um, you know, I always have my side hustles, whether it's um, journalism or book writing or speech writing, um, because TV is so uh, fickle. Yeah. And I'm the same. I have, you know, other things that keep me going. I want to talk to you about another podcast that's on our network. This one is called Fail Harder. And Emma Jane Purcell is the host and she talks to guests who are at the top of their game, succeeding in whatever industry or career or path that they're in. And she talks to them about failure, from their first failure to their relationship to failure, how failure has impacted their lives. It's fascinating. It's really well put together. I think you're going to love it. Check it out. Hello, I'm Emma Jane from Fail Harder, the podcast that chats to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. I have some unbelievable guests on the show like Paul Meskel, James Cavanagh, Georgina Campbell, the list just goes on. And of course, we'd be mad to take failure too seriously, so every week I have 20 questions in front of me numbered at random. Most are straightforward, however, some are a little more unconventional, and in the spirit of failure, my guest can pick the numbers. They might not like the results, but life's not fair and neither is my podcast. I'm just wondering as well, in the in in the book, you talk quite openly about and, and, and it's it is that subheading of the book, so it's called Just the Funny Parts. Um how is it the story of getting a into few the hard truths? Yes, about getting into the Hollywood Boys Club. And you are quite uh, overt and blatant about your experiences of being in what is an incredibly male-dominated industry and quite a toxic one at times. How were the stories that you told about, you know, in light of, I don't know, the Me Too movement or certainly about men abusing their power, how were those stories received from your male counterparts or has anyone mentioned them at all? (laughs) Oh, um, I've gotten a lot of apologies and I'm never quite sure how to process that. Like, um, 
I appreciate them. They do help. Like I said before, they sort of transfer this discomfort. Like this is something that happened that always, that for whatever reason I felt badly about. So I'm happy to hear you now feel badly about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it doesn't change the trajectory. I had, um, I wrote a pilot that was shot and the director was was not kind to me on the set. He, he was very unpleasant and would start every day saying like, I can't make this day, you have to cut a scene. And I'd be like, I, I can't cut a scene. And um, it, it made for a very toxic set. That, that wasn't nex- necessarily sexist, mm-hmm. but it was unpleasant. And he not too long ago reached out to me and said, you know, I thought back and it was at the start of my career and I was insecure and I wasn't very nice to you. So it was more of a like kicking the dog situation. Yes, yeah. Um, so there are, you know, I, th- I think um, there were people who were relieved that they were not in Mentioned, the book yeah. or that <laughs> I actually, I'm, um, when I started writing, I thought, oh, this will be fun to really settle some scores. And, and I do settle a couple. But for the most part, I found I just wanted to write about the people who'd been nice to me, yeah, who supported me, you know, like Joel Hodgson of Mystery Science Theater 3000. We were friends. We wrote a bunch of movies like the third Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves movie together. And originally, I was just going to write like two pages about Joel, and it ended up a whole chapter because I had so many fun stories to tell about our collaboration. And um, eventually, I actually made a T-shirt that said, um, I'm writing a memoir, and you're not in it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seemed like the meanest thing you could do was just ignore someone (laughs) who thought they had gotten under your skin. (laughs) But it certainly seems that you know, it's the people who that you did write about. Now, there are the people that you wrote about where you settled some scores, but the people that you wrote about and the love that came from them and how the way the book is organized, and it's it's pretty remarkable, the way the book is organized through those parts and, and the the trajectory of your career as someone who is, yes, younger and I have written two memoirs, which is ridiculous that someone my age has written that much about <laughs> like their tiny life, that it's quite difficult to like find the story of the, the the red thread through all the stories because you're living it, that it's these people and these characters that return to help you that you introduce in one section and then they come back and they offer you something that really speaks to the sort of collaborative, because it can be quite a competitive world, right? It can it, Our industry is quite competitive, but it shows through your book that it's the connections that you make and keep and, and nurture that are the ones that come back and bring something to you, like the rising tide that rises all ships, that it's not the people that you get one up on that you end up succeeding over. Do you know what I mean? Like that ends up coming back to bite you. And I just thought that as you were able to look through your entire career, the people that kept returning and like that supported you throughout your career, there was just something really magical about seeing those characters come back. Oh, good. Yeah. And and that's the kind of thing like I didn't, expect or I didn't know was there. And I, I now believe, you know, you can't relive your life, but you can reframe it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just the writing the memoir was actually really 
therapeutic and and recognizing um, mistakes I made, but also good choices that I made and seeing how I learned to stand up for myself and for all women uh, in the room. Um, what, what was, I don't know, it, it was great. I do think it's a, the, the problem as you might know of writing a memoir when you're still very much in um, it, yeah, in it, vital, um, is a strange thing. And I am sort of battling like people like, you know, you're a legend. And it's like, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's like, I'm not, this isn't a goodbye letter. I'm just saying I'm here. And do you find now that like, obviously, you're still working? Do you think that I think sometimes it's easy to look back at a time that you weren't working in. So it's easy for me to look back at a time and be like, God, it was really tough for women then. And not actually, like, because of some sort of cognitive dissonance, not accept that it's actually still quite hard now. As someone who's been through kind of a huge turning point for 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 feminism, how do you find it now working versus when you used to work in the same industry as a woman? You know, part of the impact of Lean In, and this is completely to Sheryl Sandberg's credit, is in the past, you know, when women were successful, like Carly Fiorina at Hewlett Packard wrote a book, and and the message was always, like, it was hard, but I worked hard, and I was smart, and I made it. And if you work hard, and you're smart, you can make it too. And what Cheryl said was, you know, it was hard, and it didn't need to be that hard. Mm -hmm. And it was harder for me, because I was a woman. And yeah, I made it, but here are some of the obstacles I had to overcome. And I'm going to tell you about them and tell you how, you know, the research says you can overcome them. And one of the greatest myths is um, that lean in tells women to act like men. The truth is it does the opposite in so many places because the research shows Women need to act communal. They need to act maternal. Um, For example, in negotiations, you can't go in, a man can go in and say, I did X, Y, and Z, so I should make more money. Women need to go in and say, I love this team. And together, the team did so great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's how they are more likely to get what they want. So... um, Oh, can I take a detour to tell a funny story about Trinity College? In Dublin? Yes. Yes, I'll go for it. So I got an email on LinkedIn from the head of the Philosophical Society Mm -hmm. saying they were having a debate about Lean In um, and would I participate via Zoom? And I said, well, can you tell me more? And he came back and the title was like, the error of lean in. Yeah. Okay. I was like, um, could, and that eight people would be debating. So I wrote back and said, well, you know, obviously I am interested, um, but could you guarantee that everyone who in the debate will have read the book? Basically. He wrote me back and he said, I cannot guarantee that they will have read critiques. So I wrote back and said, look, I'm not going to debate people who haven't read read the book. book. Yeah, obviously. And who have only read the often wrong critiques of the book. Um, 
So he passed. But, uh, you know, it made me sad because that's, first of all, it's not that long a book. Secondly, but it's very know, indicative what? of the Trinity College philosoph. Like that is just, oh, is you've just, yeah, they call themselves the philosoph, first of all. Um, and they, just the idea that they would contact a co-writer. Do you, is that, are you, does, is that what you're, yes, I'm the yeah, so the co-writer, um, to debate, to invite them to a debate on their book that is framed from the get-go in a pejorative way and not be able to guarantee them that those debating had even read the book is so Trinity College philosophical, I have to oh, say. Is it, I'm, I'm trying to find the the name here. Keep talking while I find it because I want to get that right. You just want to get that dig in. Yeah, I haven't. Um, I And I, I get you. I, I, I wonder how many of those people were men as well. Um, oh, interesting. I'm not going to read the book, but I'm going to criticize it. Uh, okay. Oh, in the hearsay, I am inviting you to speak in our debate. This house regrets lean-in feminism. Oh wow! Oh my God! <laughs> what does this house mean? This house is a way of them inflating their egos so that their small society, that is basically a bickering society, gives it a sort of a parliamental, like parliamentary collegiate. Uh, you know, illusion. House is an illusion okay. there. And it's doing a lot of muscle. <laughs> it's doing a lot of work in that sentence. Um, uh, anyway, so I, I regret that I couldn't join their, their debate on regrets. Do so. you, though? I don't think. I think je ne regrette rien. Um, so but to answer, so, you know, I don't, I think the numbers are now moving in the right direction in, in our field. There's still a lot of work to be done. I don't know that we should celebrate women moving from you know 20% to 30% when we're 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are moving in the right direction. Um, there is a tendency when things get better to for people to, you know, swipe their hands and say problem solved. Um, and then you fall back again. So, you know, you have to keep pushing and keep pushing. Yeah. And I think for me, what the, there's a pressure. I think that because I came in at a time when, when there was a real heavy spotlight on women and, and on broadcasters to be hiring women, that they're sort of waiting for you to fail, to be like, see, this is why we don't hire women, because the audiences don't like it. And, you know, yeah. the women need a right, first of all, to make mediocre work, because so many men make mediocre work. And also that, you know, the, those of us that fall at the in, on the front lines of that battle hopefully make way for for <laughs> for for other women to to come in and and, and succeed where we failed. True. Yeah. I would, and and for women to make a point of consuming content generated by other women is important. Yeah, to be supportive of that, I suppose. And yeah. um, what are you? What are you excited about by the moment? At the moment, like, what are you reading? What are you writing that you want to share with us that we can jump on board? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, I'm in love with international television, and I think that's been the access we now have is 
to normal people and you know dairy girls which my husband and son are obsessed with yes. i'm one of those people who i have to watch with the subtitles <laughs> some people in uh, some people in the republic of ireland have to watch that with the subtitles on oh. don't worry about it uh, but also like korean tv um i'm watching sisyphus right now and and then brazilian tv i love 3% and it's just so exciting to Alice in Borderland which is based on this um a graphic novel and is is really dark and wonderful so i'm just all about like israeli tv fayuda and <laughs> and do you do you get inspiration from watching other television or do you how does your mind work to to come up with new ideas oh that's interesting i i don't um you know usually it comes from some place inside i wrote a just sat down and wrote a pilot recently for myself called tokens and it's set in the 90s in new york and it's about um a woman and a black man man who are admitted into one of those really tony men's clubs white men's clubs yeah. in new york city because the supreme court rules that you know it's discriminatory not to have those people and you know what what it's like to be the only in a situation where nobody wants you <laughs> that's fascinating and so do you write that without anyone like you just write it for yourself and then you go and pitch it or you try and sell it yeah i mean i gave it to my agents they loved it so far no nobody has bitten mm-hmm. on it um and that's okay you know i learned something from every script i write and i try to write them quickly so you're not so deeply invested that if it doesn't sell you know you feel cheated broken yeah um i think i and you know in the book i might have said the day i can't sit down and just write a spec script because i'm compelled to is the day i guess i'm done with the business that's such a great motto And like how frequently do you do you sit down to write every day what's your schedule what's your or what's your oh, routine no. No. <laughs> Well the pandemic which it's weird like it should have given us more of a schedule because we have so much less to, to do, do. Um, But I have realized in the pandemic that not writing is part of the process of writing and in order to write stuff i have yeah. to be consuming stuff because i sit down i create something from nothing which is energetically impossible science wise right so right. the stuff that i create has to come from somewhere and it comes from me being on the bus being on the lewis talking to someone reading something seeing something and i'm seeing just the same things in my 5 km radius every day yesterday i noticed that a man i've never spoke to got new shoes because i saw him walking as i see him walking every day and he has got different shoes on and that level of sensory deprivation of course it's going to impact my work so i'm trying to like be comfort be, be compassionate with that oh well that that's nice i yeah part of my work too is we would travel a fair amount and i think that gave me the what what you're talking about that sort of like I'd be in a fresh place and I would be seeing things with new eyes my um husband and I are empty nesters so we would travel around we had a place on the west coast and a place on the east coast and I do think I got what you were saying that little lift from having fresh surroundings and that would help boost my writing um 
but these days I would say um, there's an evolutionary theory called punctuated equilibrium, okay. which says that we're mainly in stasis until there's some huge event like the meteor that took out the dinosaurs and then there's rapid change. And so I find there's a lot of days where I don't accomplish much. And then there's a day where I just, you know, write thousands and thousands of words. Um, I just wrote so that down. I remember. The one thing is to listen to yourself. And if you if you feel like writing, like do it. <laughs> Like That's the thing. Everything. I have. I just have these deadlines. So I now write for a national newspaper. I write a, a weekly column in a magazine. So I have a weekly deadline for that. So that's, and sometimes that's all I can do in a week where I'm like, I can't, it's going to take so much energy for me to think of a thing, develop the thing and write the thing that that's all I can do. And then there are weeks where I can do that and edit the pilot and have all these Zoom meetings with, with other producers and stuff. So I, but what I love in my life is consistency and nothing is consistent anymore except the tedium of not knowing when I'm going to be allowed to travel outside of five kilometres again. And then seeing how each country is dealing with it in a different way and feeling jealous. Like when you're at school and the other class get out early or the other class don't get homework and you do get homework. It feels very competitive right now. And sometimes I know that we're doing the safest way, but when I see other countries opening up like I just I just want to go to a restaurant. Yeah. And it's Hey, I started a novel. Really? Have you ever written a novel? I've started one, but I haven't I I've been asked to write one and I I'm about a thousand words in, but it's taking its time. What's yours about? <laughs> oh, I just like I think everyone should write at least half a novel because the first half was super fun and the second half has been hard. But uh, but that first half is so much fun. And I, I saw a tweet recently where someone said... I love like, you on Twitter, by the way. Oh, follow, thank you. Follow Nell on Twitter. Um, it's, it's, it's great content. Sorry, go on. Oh, it's Nelsco, N-E-L-L-S-C-O. Oh, so someone wrote, um, like, at the end of every book review, no matter how bad the book is, the reviewer should note, at any rate, it's very impressive this person finished a book. <laughs> Yes, or I think that reviewers should, at the end of their reviews, write down how many books they've written, or how many, or how many TV shows they've written, or how many things that they have made. God, critics add absolutely nothing to the world. I, I, I believe. Um, so, what does it have a title? How far are you in? Um, over two hundred pages. Wow. Printed out. So I'm I'm forty thousand words in. I think I, I have say. 1,800. I'll try and catch up with you. <laughs> um, the setup was super fun. And now I, I need to do more plotting for the back half, I think is what. But I, the first part, I was just sort of letting the characters take me where they wanted to go. That's where I'm it, at at the moment. In, it's set in Hollywood. What? It is. And I'm using... So there were a lot of stories I couldn't tell in my memoir um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but some of the uh, juicier ones are, are going in the novel. <laughs> I cannot wait for this. Do you have a title? <laughs> I don't, actually. Did you have a title for just the funny parts at the start or do titles come at the end for you? 
So that was actually, I was sitting with um, one of my mentors, Barry Kemp, who created the show New Heart and created Coach, which are huge staples of American comedy. And I told him I was thinking of writing a memoir. And he's the one who said, you should call it just the funny parts. And, um, you know, usually we're, we're writers. We like ideas that we think of. Mm -hmm. And so it's very unusual for me to take someone else's idea. But here's why I thought it was so brilliant. It really forced me not to go to negative places. Do you think that he said that to you in order to help you do that? Yes. What a yeah. genius mentor. It, it, he is. And, and I think it kept me from being as bitter as I could be, despite all my success. You know, it is very easy to, um, for anyone, whether you're, you know, male or female, to be bitter about the way Hollywood works. Yeah. That's such a good... Yeah, I actually, my best friend gave me the title for my first book as well. She was like, you should call it Why Can't Everything Just Stay the Same? But I think she was oh, joking good. because that's a really long title. But I was like, OK, I'll do that because I, I like taking direction. Um, Nell, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I'm really glad that I can see you because I haven't I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> uh, have you been up and down to New York much? Not at all. This is the longest I've ever been uh, outside, you know, not visiting New York and I miss it. But um, it's not New York really anymore right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'll wait a couple of months. There's a lot to do. Um, and how's your family? They're good. My family is good. Yeah, my mom is good. And um, I got engaged last year. Um, Lovely. So we're getting married this year. And... At the moment, you can have six people at a wedding in Ireland or and when it opens up, you can have 25 and then the max is 50 if the numbers come down. So we don't know what the wedding's going to be like. But yeah, things are good. And, you know, I think in the context of a pandemic, if boredom or tediousness is, is your greatest complaint, yeah. then you're doing pretty, pretty good. And are you boxing still? I'm not boxing. I got an injury. I ruptured my sagittal band. So I ruptured my knuckle. Oh no. So I stopped boxing. But I do the gym twice a week with my trainer. Now it's on Zoom. And I've started jogging, but I don't know that my body is made for jogging. I'm getting a lot of injuries, particularly around my hips. <laughs> I feel like such an old I person. I do. I, there's, I take great joy in like putting on my podcast and just going on walks for hours, no matter what the weather is, I, I get out there. I read a re some report that the average American spends, I think it's like 20 minutes outdoors a day. And it, I was so shocked by that. Even um, in a pandemic? No, this was before. This was right. pre-pandemic. But I'm, I'm trying to personally change that um, average. Yes. <laughs> get it to 21 <laughs> minutes. So do you spend a lot, a lot of, because it's pretty cold I up there. I try to spend time outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, did you have a difficult winter? It was cold, but you know, what is it, that there's no bad weather, only bad gear. gear. Yeah. So. so a good trip to Ori and you're all set. <laughs> um, Thank you. When your phone rang, I was hoping it would be Nate. I was like, oh, what does she have Nate calling to say hi to both of oh, us? Oh, I don't, I don't think he's probably awake because he's in, 
he's in LA, right? So he's not going to be awake for another oh, that's true. two it's or three hours. Weird. But we should definitely do a Nate and you podcast. Let's do okay. it. I'll, I'll get Alan to organize that. Oh, because I'd love to hear what his memories yeah. are of Sabrina. He says it's interesting. I remember he, he had an issue with showing up on time. And I gave him a, like, you're a man now. You have to act like a man's speech. And I do wonder, like, it was, it was overkill. I got to tell you. I wonder and if I he was, remembers. I was in my 30s. I was like, what do I tell this person? Oh, my God. We have um, to talk about that. He says that he doesn't have do, very many. because I want to know if it helped or annoyed him. <laughs> You'll probably find he doesn't even remember. He's so <laughs> laid back. He's pretty horizontal. Um, I am going to let you go. Thank you so very much for chatting to me. I am actually going to get Alan to organise that podcast with you and Nate. So we'll be in touch about that. Um, awesome. And thank you so much I for everything. I miss you. You look great. So. Thank you. I miss you too. And yeah. we will keep in touch. And anyone who wants to buy your book, it's called Just the Funny Parts. It's available where books are. And you should follow her on Twitter. It's Nelsco, N-E-L-S-C-O. And... That's pretty much your social, is it? Yes. Yes, that's it. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. I really hope you enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. As a screenwriter, I look up to Nell. I think she's absolutely incredible and I hope you found the podcast interesting. For those of you who have subscribed to the extra bonus material, thank you for getting in touch with me. I love when I get your Instagram messages about uh, just the things that you have enjoyed from the bonus material. Chats with Cahill or me singing with Clelia. It does really make a difference to me that you support the podcast. And for those of you who want to do it, become members of this community, you can go to headstuffpodcasts.com and become Headstuff Plus members for five euro a month. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.